Psychedelics, a class of hallucinogenic drugs with powerful mind-altering capabilities, are having a moment. Many of these psychoactive chemicals weren't made in a lab, but were found in nature, produced by plants and fungi. These naturally derived substances have been used by traditional healing practitioners for thousands of years, but as a matter of law, in our time and in this country, they are federally illegal Schedule I substances considered to have no medical value and a high likelihood of abuse. And while the federal prohibition on psychedelics hasn't budged, things are evolving. The medical research is growing. State and local laws are changing. Between an emerging pharmaceutical promise, a grassroots movement for decriminalization, and an advocacy community focused on fair access and equity, the field is at a critical inflection point. The future of psychedelics policy is being shaped today by a wide range of interests, including healthcare workers, government regulators, pharmaceutical startups, and traditional use advocates, whose efforts will determine where we go from here. Join us as Law360 explores psychedelics. I'm Sam Reisman, the senior psychedelics and cannabis reporter here at Law360. And there's a lot of excitement about what broadening access to psychedelics could mean for people struggling with mental health conditions. That excitement is fueling policy reform efforts in state houses, at the ballot box, and through impact litigation in the courts. And if that description of a multi-pronged legal movement to bring about policy change on federally controlled drugs seems familiar to you, you're not alone. At a glance, the reform movement surrounding psychedelics mirrors the journey of another Schedule I substance, cannabis, or marijuana, which has been legalized for adult recreational use in 22 states and for medical use in another 16, despite remaining federally illegal. For the most part, cannabis legalization took off thanks to voter-led referendums, which amended state laws via the ballot. A similar movement is taking place in the psychedelics realm. Voters in Oregon and Colorado recently approved measures to decriminalize some psychedelics and establish regulated treatment centers where adult patients can take psilocybin under the care of a state-licensed clinician. In our 2019 series, Legalization, Law360 explored how the gap between state and federal policy makes it difficult for cannabis businesses to find banking, file taxes, or secure their intellectual property. Some of these issues exist in the psychedelic space as well, but psychedelics have something cannabis never did, a growing body of clinical trials showing that the substances, when coupled with talk therapy, can treat a wide range of ailments. For instance, psilocybin, the active chemical in so-called magic mushrooms, has been shown to decrease depression and anxiety in patients suffering from terminal illness. But FDA approval of a drug is still at least a few years away. Some patients can't wait that long. And that's where we kick off our story, with a case out of Washington State, where a physician has teamed up with a group of lawyers to fight the DEA over its treatment of psilocybin. It's a very... Um simple humanitarian request if there's a doctor that's supporting this and if the patient is you know eligible and if the drug has shown safety in a trial why would you not give it to somebody you know to try something uh, it's sort of a therapeutic right this is dr sunil agarwal a physician and medical geographer and a founder of the seattle-based advanced integrative medical science institute or ames institute for short Dr. Agarwal and his partners study novel therapies, such as psilocybin, that can help patients with life-threatening illness. The results, he says, have been promising. The goals of palliative care, which is a field of medicine that have to do with alleviation of 
distress related to life-threatening illness, related to um, usually like demoralization, hopelessness, you know, sometimes pain. Many of those domains are alleviated in a psilocybin-assisted therapy um, intervention based on the research that we have uh, available and has been published and replicated many times. But despite the promising findings of this research, psilocybin's illegal status still presents obstacles to patients and doctors. Dr. Agarwal is currently petitioning the Ninth Circuit over the DEA's refusal to reconsider psilocybin despite these new studies. He also says his patients have a right to access psilocybin before it's FDA approved. In 2021, the Ames Institute asked the circuit court to order the DEA to allow doctors to use psilocybin to treat terminally ill patients. In that petition, Ames argued that the Controlled Substances Act must give way to a 2018 federal statute and a collection of state laws called Right to Try, which allows eligible patients to use therapies that are not yet approved by the FDA. For patients with life-threatening illness, they do not have the time to wait the long, slow process of new drug approval to wend its way to completion. So for that population of patients, they are intended to have access to certain investigational drugs. Catherine Tucker, an attorney with Emerge Law Group, is one of the lawyers representing Ames in its efforts. The obstacle is the status of psilocybin on Schedule 1 and the DEA's refusal to accommodate state and federal right to try laws. We believe the DEA has a duty to accommodate right to try. And yet when we approached the DEA, it refused to do so, which led us to file a case now referred to as Ames 1, Ames versus DEA, where we took the DEA into federal court challenging that denial. The Ames Institute has filed three cases against the DEA over its treatment of psilocybin. The case that is moving forward in the Ninth Circuit right now is the third one, Ames 3, which challenges the agency's summary rejection of Ames's petition to reclassify psilocybin from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. In his opening brief, Dr. Agarwal told the appellate court that the DEA had ignored his arguments in favor of rescheduling psilocybin, and violated the law by not consulting the FDA to assess psilocybin's potential health benefits. The rescheduling of drugs really has to be a flexible process that accommodates emerging information. That's always how the laws are supposed to be, and the, the DEA has really never used it like that. It's they pretty much just locked everything down until a new FDA drug approval comes along, and then they change the schedule. That's pretty much how they've mostly done it. But that's not really the intention and obviously does not serve the needs of people because these drugs have a much longer history than the FDA. They are traditional, like I was mentioning. So it's really kind of a, it's an onerous process and it's putting, you know, the necessary medical care at risk. For the litigators representing Dr. Agarwal and Ames in their case against the DEA, the implications of the petition are bigger than psilocybin, right to try laws, or patients' rights. The appeal cuts to the heart of the process the DEA uses when it reviews petitions to reschedule drugs, a process that has stymied cannabis reform advocates for decades. Ames 3 is positioned to be the vehicle that eradicates the erroneous test that the DEA has applied for more than 50 years. And our case, which relates not to cannabis but to psilocybin, is possibly the vehicle that will 
overturn that erroneous test. So the significance of Ames 3 is much greater than its import for psilocybin because it could change how all future rescheduling petitions are handled. The movement to expand legal patient access to psychedelics is moving along multiple fronts. Perhaps none is as far-reaching and potentially consequential as the surge in interest from the pharmaceutical sector. And there's plenty of psychedelics to study. In addition to psilocybin, there's mescaline, which can be found in multiple species of cacti, including San Pedro and peyote. The alkaloids, ibogaine and DMT, which are produced by several plants, and the latter of which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, among the man-made psychedelics, there's MDMA, an empathogen also known as ecstasy, which was first synthesized in 1912. And there's LSD, a potent hallucinogen, first synthesized in 1938. In recent years, more universities have launched research centers devoted to these substances, and a growing number of startups have entered the space to pursue clinical trials on their potential applications and to build their intellectual property portfolios. In short, we are witnessing a sprint to see who will be first to market an FDA-approved psychedelic-based therapy in the U.S. This means the psychedelic industry needs lawyers. Two psychedelics which have shown some of the most promise are psilocybin and MDMA. Despite being Schedule One drugs, both have been designated as breakthrough therapies by the FDA. So what exactly does that mean? Vincent Slawoski, managing partner at law firm Harris Bricken with a focus on cannabis and psychedelics law. It means the FDA considers these substances or medicines to be especially promising, and they've put them on sort of a fast track regulatory approval process that's different than the FDA treats other drugs in the pharmaceutical pipeline. It doesn't mean that the scheduling has changed or anything like that. And if or when one of these psilocybin drugs ultimately is approved, then there will have to be an exemption for that drug from Schedule 1, which is where psilocybin currently sits. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill have filed legislation to expedite even more research into psychedelic therapies, but there are already dozens of projects underway to secure FDA approval for Schedule 1 drugs in development right now. The two furthest along are an effort sponsored by nonprofit Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, to prescribe MDMA in conjunction with therapy to patients with post-traumatic stress disorder. And another, backed by company Compass Pathways, is seeking approval of psilocybin-assisted therapy to treat major depression. Both approaches are undergoing phase three clinical trials. I guess the federal government is looking at these as sort of promising, or at least one agency of the federal government is looking at these as sort of promising, but the state of the law is still what it is. And the only studies that are allowed are in these highly controlled FDA clinical trials. It's an unusual situation for such a booming new area of pharmaceutical development. Despite all the investment and interest pouring into the space to get FDA authorized psychedelic medicines on the market, in a strange sense, the generics are already here. Psychedelics derived from plants and fungi, like psilocybin and plant-derived mescaline and DMT, can't be patented because they're not new, and the psychedelics that were made in a lab, like MDMA or LSD, are known quantities. No one can put a patent on those for the same reason. When the natural substance itself is not patentable, then I think people get very creative about what they can try to protect. So... <laughs> 
Kimberly Chu is a former life sciences researcher and a senior product liability attorney at Hush Blackwell. Last year, Chu, along with two of her colleagues, launched one of the first practice groups at a national law firm dedicated to psychedelics and emerging therapies. She shared with us how some companies have gotten creative by filing patents for treatment settings, the physical environment in which the trip session takes place. Soft furnishings, soft lighting, making it look basically more home-like is my understanding. People are up in arms that you can just have a living room setting. And why should we have to pay you a royalty license for having a lamp and a sofa? <laughs> I mean, it's related to clinical success. But I think of people, a lot of people are just, just feel that it's too broad. Other companies are even seeking to patent their own risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, or REMS. It may sound a little odd to try to patent a safety program, but there are ways to do it. And that a lot of times what we have seen in the patent area is for REMS patents is they're too general. And so they can be invalidated on that basis. It's early days for the industry, but companies are already turning to the courts to protect their IP. In the last year alone, we've seen a federal lawsuit filed in March over the patent for a new psychedelic. Companies have sought post-grant review for issued patents, two of which were denied in June. And last summer, we saw the filing of the first trade secret lawsuit filed in the psychedelic space. When it comes to the drugs themselves, companies are eyeing patents on new extraction technologies that can pull the psychoactive compounds out, or even new synthetic formulations of the old chemicals. New compounds are patentable, which means... They can get, uh, you know, as much as 20 years of patent life. This is Graham Pachenik, a patent attorney with a background in pharmaceutical and cannabis IP and the founder of Calix Law. His practice is largely focused on new chemicals based on natural psychedelics that can achieve the same desired effects. These novel formulations have the benefit for companies that develop them of bestowing monopoly rights. But Pachenik says there are upshots for patients as well. For instance, psilocybin takes six, eight hours uh, in treatment and therefore, it's you know a lot of hours of uh, a therapist or the person who has to supervise the session. Other compounds might provide the same benefits, but in a shorter time frame. Or MDMA, for instance, has effects on blood pressure and heart rate that might make it difficult to use with certain populations, older populations or people with high blood pressure, for instance. So maybe there's an intactogen-like MDMA compound that has the same benefits but doesn't have those drawbacks. The industry says that bringing new FDA-approved versions of age-old psychedelics to the market will benefit patients by standardizing dosages and ensuring good manufacturing practices. Kimberly Chu. You have to know exactly how much active pharmaceutical ingredient or API is in your product. And when you have a natural product, you won't know that. Or, you know, you won't know it just pulling it straight out of your greenhouse or out of the ground or, or whatnot without further testing. And so when you have a synthetic, you'll be able to describe to the FDA or to, to anyone who's taking the drug how much active pharmaceutical ingredient is in the product and then be able to dose it. And I think the big idea behind things like that and REMS is all about safety. It's all about patient safety. The other upshot is that if it's an FDA-approved medication that someone can get a prescription for, insurance carriers would be expected to pick up some of the costs. This is particularly important since the treatment regimes studied in these trials include more than one in-person counseling session, which can be prohibitively expensive for most people. Here's Graham Pachanik again. And if it's FDA approved for a particular indication that somebody is diagnosed with, it may be possible to have insurance reimbursement for it. So people might be able to get it paid by their, their health care insurance or by Medicare. 
and that's not possible if it's just obtained you know through the black market or even from state markets and now we come to another avenue for bringing psychedelic treatment to the masses one happening entirely outside the scope of the fda's drug approval process the state markets that graham just mentioned are the burgeoning regimes for state-regulated psilocybin-assisted therapy currently being developed in Oregon and Colorado. These efforts are part of a broader movement to liberalize laws around nature-derived psychedelics at the state and local level, and one that does not necessarily leave room for pharma companies to put their personal stamp on the drugs. And I mean, in Oregon, they made explicit in the law that synthetic psilocybin wasn't required to be used as part of their program, and I think they've even tried to have it so that synthetic psilocybin wouldn't be used in their program. And most of the efforts, both local and state, have really focused on the fact that these are natural medicines and come from nature and you know, come from plant and fungal sources. So that's a, you know an important part of it philosophically. Voters in Oregon and Colorado approved the creation of licensed and regulated psilocybin treatment centers via ballot initiatives in 2020 and 2022, respectively. Oregon's program is further along. Following a two-year rulemaking period, the Oregon Health Authority earlier this year began accepting applications for psilocybin manufacturers, treatment centers, and facilitators. It has just begun issuing the first licenses, with the goal of beginning services later this year. Colorado's Department of Regulatory Agencies has an advisory board in place with a deadline to make policy recommendations by the end of September. And as more and more states like Colorado and maybe the other West Coast states and some other ones that have current legislation allow for psilocybin therapy, then you know those will also be competing with uh, any FDA-approved psilocybin. And there remains, of course, the issue that these are still Schedule One substances. Any organization or individual involved in the manufacture or sale of psilocybin, even with a license issued by a state authority, would be in violation of the CSA. Attorney Catherine Tucker says that some of the players entering the state markets may be taking for granted that federal drug enforcers will look the other way, like they did with cannabis. I am concerned that the state legalizations could be entirely shut down should the federal position to enforce federal law be pursued. And I think there's been a very cavalier assumption that the feds are going to look the other way as they eventually did in the cannabis arena. But let's remember, one of the reasons why the feds chose to adopt policy of non-enforcement related to the practical burden of the impossibility of the feds enforcing against cannabis when it was such a dispersed dispensary model. The enactments in Oregon and, and Colorado see a supervised service center model where there's going to be relatively few service centers and that practical barrier will not exist. It's not just Oregon and Colorado. Lawmakers in at least a dozen other states this year alone filed bills aimed at decriminalizing the possession and use of natural psychedelics and establishing state-regulated treatment regimes along similar lines. Industry stakeholders say it's conceivable that these state-led decriminalization efforts are on a collision course with the projects to get a psychedelic approved with the FDA. There's already an uphill battle with trying to convince the public that these drugs are safe under certain conditions and under certain kinds of 
medical observation, right? Medical medical supervision that they, these can be safe. But there's, I mean, there's a whole cadre of people that are convinced that you know, back from the '60s, that these are your brains are fried if you take these. So if you have the decriminalization industry get ahead of what is trying to be put through clinical trials, I think there might be there's a huge concern in the industry about that that it could just kill the industry altogether. State regulators, pharmaceutical researchers, and corporate attorneys are on the cutting edge of building new frameworks for the legalization of psychedelics. But these substances existed and were in use long before our current so-called psychedelics renaissance. The status of psychedelics as religious sacraments, sometimes called entheogens, has a complex and fraught history in its own right, with legal battles at the intersection of First Amendment freedoms and federal drug policy still playing out. A very brief history of U.S. law as it touches on controlled substances and religious rights. In 1990, the Supreme Court held that the state of Oregon could deny unemployment benefits to two members of the Native American church who used peyote, a cactus which produces the psychedelic mescaline. In the aftermath, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, to ensure that religious practices would not be hindered by government policies. In 2006, the Supreme Court revisited the issue in a case where a New Mexican church practicing the Brazilian Santo Daime religion sued federal law enforcers over the seizure of a shipment of ayahuasca, a psychoactive tea containing DMT. The court ruled unanimously that the Controlled Substances Act is subject to RIFRA, and following the Supreme Court's lead, a federal district judge in Oregon ruled three years later that another Santo Daime church also had a right to use ayahuasca. But these cases did not establish a blanket green light for churches to use controlled substances in their rights. The DEA has set the criteria for what a church has to provide if it wants to secure a religious exemption. This includes furnishing the agency with details about what the religion believes, its specific practices, and details about how it plans to handle the controlled substance. Attorneys who work in the space say the process is anything but straightforward, rarely results in a successful exemption, and could even make organizations that seek an exemption vulnerable to scrutiny and liability. Allison Hoots is an attorney and advocate focused on the religious and spiritual use of psychedelics. You have to provide information about your practices, and then they say that you have to agree not to participate in ceremonies or use the substance until a determination is made by the agency. Um, in my opinion, that is a substantial burden in and of itself. One of the churches that unsuccessfully sought a DEA exemption is the Orlando-based SoulQuest Church of Mother Earth, which is currently waging a court battle against the agency in the 11th Circuit. After three years of petitioning the DEA, SoulQuest brought its lawsuit in Florida federal court in April 2020. The church accused the DEA of wrongfully asserting jurisdiction over the evaluation of religious practices and of violating the church's First Amendment freedom to exercise its religion. After the litigation commenced, the DEA finally issued a formal denial of SoulQuest's petition in 2021, and a federal district judge sided with the DEA and ordered the case dismissed in March last year. In its appeal of the dismissal now before the circuit court, SoulQuest argues the DEA had no authority to assess religious sincerity, and the process the DEA uses to gauge religious sincerity has no basis in law. What we don't want to see is the government determining if someone is sincerely religious to some degree. Of course, there are going to be some criteria about whether this is just an attempt to circumvent the controlled substances law. But at the same time, 
religion is such a broad spectrum. Whether something is just spiritual, shouldn't that be protected? That's a really interesting question. Is something organized enough to be religious? Can religion be something that doesn't have dogma? These are all things that I don't think the government is prepared to answer um, because I can barely answer those questions. And I consider these things every day. Beyond the issue of how the DEA weighs religious sincerity, some advocates say there's the more urgent question of how the explosion and new interest in psychedelics will affect the indigenous cultures that have stewarded these substances for generations. You know, in psychedelics, we have underground therapists, existing religious and ceremonial communities, and other ways people are accessing and relating to others around psychedelics. And these people and communities and paradigms of access cannot get squeezed out. This is Ariel Clark, an attorney with the law firm Clark Howell, where she has practiced Native American, cannabis, and psychedelics law, as well as serving as a founding member of the Psychedelics Bar Association. According to Clark, for stakeholders in the traditional use world, the resurgence in psychedelic interest from the medical, business, and drug reform communities is not always a welcome development. We're at a time where the mainstream has, quote-unquote, discovered psychedelics. Right. But nearly all of this action has been and is almost entirely with regard to indigenous people and their traditional medicines. Decriminalization is an essential step, but it's not the only step. Philomena Quebec is an attorney currently acting as the economic development coordinator for the Bad River Tribe after serving in multiple tribal government roles. You know, especially when we're talking about these psychedelics that are derived from natural indigenous medicines, there there needs to be a dialogue with Native people and, and a consultation with Native people and, and discussion. If it's, if it's more exploitation of our lands, territories, natural resources, you know, this, this great thing could end up hurting indigenous people just like many other episodes of colonization. There is a religious exemption to the Controlled Substances Act that is older than the policies we've been discussing. The carve-out that allows members of the Native American church to cultivate and use the cactus peyote. But advocates say this too is coming under threat from a resurgent Western interest in psychedelics. There's a growing problem with dwindling supply of of, uh, peyote and and the natural habitat, uh, incursions Uh, degradation of the natural habitat in South Texas. Stephen Moore is an attorney with the Native American Rights Fund going back 40 years. Lately, his advocacy work has focused on working with an effort called the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative, or IPCI, which was launched in 2017 by members of the Native American Church to protect both the habitat and unique legal status of peyote. He says that new Western interest in traditional plant medicines and a concurrent movement to decriminalize natural psychedelics has led to an uptick in illegal trespassing and poaching in the region where peyote is cultivated. In addition to maintaining a 605-acre preserve for the sustainable cultivation of peyote, the IPCI has lobbied lawmakers and advocates behind psychedelic decriminalization to protect the plant by, in effect, keeping it illegal, except for native use. The organization also pledges to oppose any effort by pharmaceutical companies to synthesize mescaline from peyote or to patent a process for doing so. And and there's a long history of having to fight to get where the Native American church is today. 
with secure rights under federal law. But um, let, let's not be in a rush to to trash all of that because of some felt privilege or entitlement by the dominant society to have access to all plant medicines. And, and I hear that from well-intentioned people. Well, God put these plants on earth for all people to learn from. Well, okay, um, but maybe you don't have to use peyote. You know, maybe you can use San Pedro. Maybe you can use some other plant medicine. But why peyote when you know, if you open your eyes and accept the reality that the supply of, of peyote and the habitat is in a very fragile state, why would you make that deliberate choice to, to use peyote knowing that you're contributing to the problem? You know, that's that's the question that I have for advocates of decriminalizing all plant medicines is, OK, let's let's strike some balance. Let's be respectful of the position of indigenous peoples about their way of life. Native advocacy efforts have gotten results. Colorado's Proposition 122, the ballot initiative that passed in November that decriminalized possession of natural psychedelics, specifically excludes mescaline derived from peyote from its provisions. Bills introduced this session in California and New York, as well as numerous efforts to decriminalize natural psychedelics at the municipal level, make the same exception. And at the national level, activists are lobbying to include peyote protections in the next federal farm bill, which Congress will approve later this year. But peyote is just one flashpoint in a larger conversation about stewardship, access, and indigenous rights taking place in the psychedelics ecosystem. You know, a failure in the West to recognize the sacred cultural position of medicines in writing laws and putting together working groups and task forces, you know, companies that are filing patents on traditional medicine, like all of this is happening. Meanwhile, indigenous people are largely absent from the field, from research, from lawmaking discussions. Ariel Clark was on the front lines of marijuana legalization and has seen firsthand how policies shaping the world of post-prohibition cannabis left some stakeholders behind. In cannabis, certainly in California, you know, most legacy growers and other cannabis folks are really experiencing the extinction event that we were afraid of. And post-legalization looks like corporate consolidation and small and medium-sized businesses out of business because they can't compete with the unregulated market on one end and hugely capitalized companies on the other, plus they're shouldering government mismanagement of regulatory implementation, the regulatory compliance costs that are through the roof, and many of the rules, like literally the rules that govern the businesses are not grounded in reality and still treat cannabis like plutonium. There is also concern about how the companies emerging to take advantage of psychedelics therapeutic potentials are positioning themselves in the marketplace. You know, the Western psychedelics ecosystem is really at an ethical inflection point. You know, because while there might be international laws that try to protect against extractive, lacking in consent approaches, those international instruments are imperfect, certainly do not protect indigenous people and sacred medicine and lands and ecologies in most of what's happening in psychedelic capitalism and Western youth. The attorneys who came together to form the Psychedelics Bar Association have sought to enshrine some of these issues into their organizational focus and put them at the center of psychedelic attorneys' professional practice. Catherine Tucker, who we heard from earlier, 
is a founding member of the Psychedelics Bar Association. I think that the gestalt is to come to this field with a profound and sincere respect for the ancient use and application of psychedelic substances across time and across cultures, and to be mindful that for many cultures, these are sacred substances, and they're to be approached with an awareness of that overall integrity as we take them forward in modern day America, where, you know, sort of capitalism and business interests generally don't bring those kinds of principles into mind and practice. Cannabis reform advocates have perhaps optimistically described marijuana legalization as a question of not if, but when. And increasingly, as more stakeholders have entered the fray, a matter of not when, but how. As we have seen, the legal status of psychedelics in the U.S. is evolving quickly on multiple fronts. A wide range of interests have absorbed the lessons of marijuana reform and are lining up to shape the future of psychedelics and the law. Not if, but when. Not when, but how. Thank you for joining us for Law360 Explores Psychedelics. The show was hosted by me, Sam Reisman, and produced by Stephen Trader. Kelly Marcano was our co-producer, composer, and graphic designer. The show was executive produced by Amber McKinney. Special thanks to Kalila Holt, to my editors Ed Beeson, Shannon Henson, and Michael Martinez, and to my team member Mike Curley. I'd also like to thank the Law360 reporters who have contributed a ton of articles on psychedelics over the past few years, including Hannah Alborazi, Jonathan Capriel, Mike Curley, Eli Flesh, Sarah Jarvis, Colin Krabby, Adam Lidget, Katrina Pereira, Kevin Pinner, and Daniel Tay. And thanks to Diana Novak-Jones, who led the way with Law360's podcast series on cannabis legalization. <laughs>